0: Every company has a large volume of routine data workflows. These data workflows involve spreadsheets, CSV files, and tedious manual work to be done by a knowledge worker. For example, data might need to be taken from Salesforce and filtered for new customers and piped into MailChimp, or perhaps you need to sort all your customers to find only the ones who have spent more than $50. These data workflows might require some basic knowledge of SQL, or an understanding of how to make an API request. And not everyone in the world knows how to execute these somewhat technical commands. A software company can be slowed down due to a shortage of technical analysts who have the necessary programming skills to build these kinds of data workflows. Parabola is a low-code tool for building data workflows. Parabola lets the user drag and drop different components together to build an application without using a programming language. Parabola lowers the technical barrier for knowledge workers who want to build these kinds of data workflows. Alex Yassin is the CEO of Parabola, and he joins the show to talk about the ideas behind Parabola and his goals with the company. It's a great conversation about a particular kind of low-code tool, one that might also be quite useful for engineers. Alex Yassin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Every large company, there's a set of knowledge workers that work mostly in spreadsheets. Why has the spreadsheet been such an irreplaceable tool for so long?
1: Well, I think it's really the only tool for the past probably four years, that's actually been built for those type of users. The knowledge worker that you're talking about, somebody who's working in marketing or sales or operations, might be this really interesting analytical thinker with kind of deep strategic mindset, a lot of what would otherwise be like a quantitative horsepower, but somewhere along the way, didn't learn how to code. Didn't slot themselves into the engineering path and they ended up in marketing or operations or sales and kind of don't have a lot of ways to express that quantitative horsepower ways to work with data unless tools are given to them. And starting with early spreadsheets, I think one of the reasons they were kind of like the first killer feature for a computer is it gave all of these people the ability for the first time to actually do things in the digital world.
0: What are the ways in which spreadsheet workflows are insufficient?
1: The early spreadsheets were made to some columns of data for like financial statements and and things like that. And today people are running whole businesses on top of spreadsheets where they're doing inventory management and marketing attribution, all kinds of detailed accounting workflows, things that a spreadsheet was really never built to do. And so some of the ideas of every cell of a spreadsheet being able to reference every other cell and having all these deeply nested formulas without much of the structure that a software engineer would apply to code really makes them this kind of tangled mess that is the least good solution to a lot of these problems, but it's also the only solution to a lot of these problems at the moment. That's kind of why business users don't get really well served, but still use spreadsheets throughout every company that exists.
0: At some point, a given spreadsheet workflow becomes so complex that you would want an engineer to be brought in to create some kind of internal application to replace the spreadsheet but there's never enough engineering resources. So most of the time the company just keeps the painful spreadsheet process. Is that accurate or do spreadsheet workflows get replaced by code? Oh no, I think
1: that's totally accurate. So. Right out of undergrad, I worked in strategy consulting, and I kind of a variety of companies from startups up through like Fortune 50 companies. And probably the biggest commonality that I saw was the amount of core, core business processes that your average exec maybe doesn't even know exist, but that are really holding up the whole company are just running on top of spreadsheets. And at one company I'll leave unnamed, Fortune 50 company, we were trying to dig into where the data that was feeding an entire call center worth of operations was coming from. Somebody told us it was coming from Craigslist. And we said, oh, it couldn't possibly mean like a Craigslist the website. They said, oh, no, uh, this guy named Craig, who used to work at our company five years ago, made a spreadsheet, and we call it Craigslist as a joke. Nobody knew how it worked, but they were inputting data, and it was feeding the operations of a like 50-person call center, just some kind of random you know, spreadsheet a <laughs> person had made. And I saw these kind of things really throughout companies of all sizes. And I think you're right. I think part of the reason that is true is there aren't enough engineers in the world to work on all of the data and build all these processes that need to be built. I like to say that even, even a Google or whoever you want to think of currently as the best recruiter of engineers in Silicon Valley can't hire enough software engineers to do all of the data work that they want to do, let alone all of the companies that can't even like dream of hiring a Silicon Valley whatever, type of software engineer. And I think that's part of the problem. But I think the other part of the problem is. This Craig who made Craigslist actually was like a really deep subject matter expert at how to make call center operations work really efficiently for this company and had spent probably a career developing that expertise. And some software engineer that they would bring in one day to replace, I think, probably doesn't have that expertise. And I think there's something really interesting about the person with the expertise being able to also be the person who builds... The solution. And I think in today's world, that's very rarely the case, at least for full software products.
0: Right, because the subject matter expert is going to have some pieces of domain expertise that they don't even know how to express, but it's going to come out in whatever Excel model that they build.
1: Right, exactly. Hopefully, if they build it well. And that's only for the subset of people who know how to build Excel models. I think there's an even larger group of people who The word VLOOKUP or or something that is, you know, a common Excel task gives them nightmares and is a really scary concept. So, yeah, I think the person who becomes a subject matter expert in a lot of these areas, the absolute best product marketer or best inventory manager, person managing the call center operations, doesn't really have the time to take on the overhead of... Sometimes it's even learning Excel, but certainly not of like learning how to code and staying, you know, taking 20% of their time to stay fresh with the latest JavaScript frameworks and all that kind of stuff. They're really embedded in their deep subject matter expertise. And, you know, as a result, we end up with this world where either a lot of these problems go unsolved and the people who really have identified the most interesting problems to solve and the best opportunities to apply automation and promise of the digital revolution and computers in general to their tasks aren't really able to do so. And in the rare instances where they are, They have to write up some kind of crazy requirements doc and get the buy-in of some engineers that our company hopefully can hire and retain and build software that'll then have to go through some kind of change management process and be maintained. It becomes this whole nightmare when all this person really wanted to do was just get their ideas that they had in their head out into the world and, and making the world a better
0: place. When you take the category of knowledge worker, there is this spectrum of technicality. So on one end, you have the programmer. The programmer can create whatever they need to create with code. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the spreadsheet worker. Spreadsheet worker is still very intellectually capable, but they're nowhere near the freedom and flexibility of the programmer. What is between these two types of users on the spectrum? What is the semi-technical user?
1: We think about this a lot, actually, because for Parabola, the company I'm I'm currently founding, this user you're describing is kind of our initial earliest kind of adopter and has been our earliest adopter. We call them a productivity optimizer, where they are kind of just starting to dip their toe in the water of these more technical concepts. So it's frequently somebody who once took a SQL course online and didn't really go much further, but knew that they thought that that was a thing they needed to do. Someone who... If you walked into a marketing team meeting at you know any sufficiently big company, had everybody close their eyes and point at the data person in the room, they'd all point at the same person. It's not on their job description, but they just kind of become the go-to person for the slightly more technical, slightly more sophisticated things. And they're kind of really like yearning for this opportunity to cross the gap from a non-engineer to an engineer and just haven't kind of yet done so. And maybe to back up for a second, I just said that gap between a non-engineer and an engineer. I think you could lay out all of the types of users you were just describing or people you were just describing as productivity leverage spectrum. So somebody who like, the most kind of tenured experienced software engineer in a few hours of really focused time can create a huge amount of like economic output. They can do really amazing things because they can build a thing on their computer get it out into the world. And the amount of value they're creating is the amount of value that people are getting by using the thing they create. And on the extreme other side, you have somebody who is doing like a very manual labor type of role, where the amount of value other people get is the amount of time that they put into what they're doing. And most jobs in the world today are much closer to that kind of manual labor side than they are to the software engineer side. And this magical moment happens when you learn how to code today, where you jump from Being the kind of person who the amount of output you're able to create is how much input you put in to being able to create things that kind of have a life of their own. And so we're kind of in the business of helping people jump across that gap. And ideally, we get everybody in the world down to that farthest other side of the spectrum to be able to jump across that gap.
0: You work on Parabola, which is a visual programming tool for working with data sets and APIs and workflow automation. Describe the problem in a little more detail that Parabola is trying to solve?
1: Well, so what we're really doing at Parabola is we're giving people a platform to take their ideas or like what they want to do and turning it into something a computer can understand, right, And, and execute on a set of instructions. We have described that as a visual programming tool before. Frequently get taught, you know, this like no code group of tools gets talked about a lot. I think you've had a few people on your podcast talking about them. I really don't like to group us in or kind of talk too much about the no code world specifically because I think that's a lot of talking about like what it isn't, right? It's like it, the core innovation there being that it's not coding. Most of our users aren't debating whether they should learn to code or use a tool. Like that ship has kind of sailed for them. They're not planning on taking on all this overhead of learning how to code. They're looking for a way to take their creativity and their curiosity and their analytic capability and get it out into the world and kind of show that they are the kind of person who can create things and, and not just someone who has to kind of be beholden to someone who does know how to create that stuff. So we're kind of giving these people the capability to be self-sufficient and be that subject matter expert we were just talking about, but actually also be able to then create the tool that solves their pain point or the pain points they identify.
0: In Parabola, the user creates a flow. Can you give an example of a typical flow that a user would create?
1: Sure. So these flows range in kind of wide variety of complexity. So the simplest flow might be pulling in a data source. So maybe it's literally a CSV file for my computer, or maybe something I have in Dropbox, applying some on of transformations to it. You know, the simplest one would be, I'm just filtering out some columns, A much more complex one would be I want to run a sentiment analysis on each row of data and get some kind of positive or negative sentiment score, you know, and all kinds of, you know, types of transforms in between those levels of complexity. And then at the end, I probably want to send that someplace. So or take some kind of action on that data, I want to put it back into Dropbox, I want to send my boss an email with the consolidated report I just created, I want to send a text message alert, you know, every morning with the ARR of my company, like kind of Whatever type of action you want to take for your more technical listeners, that sounds like an ETL process or something like that. Right. I think a lot of tools probably follow a similar flow. But what we really focus on is the middle part, all those transformations and kind of the logic you can apply in the middle. Any software program you're building you know, has a view layer and a logic layer and a data layer. So we really play a lot in that kind of logic layer, but specifically on the Rich logic you can build, not just the data connections kind of on either side. Those are for kind of in the Parabola world, those are more just the implementation details of, of course, you have to get data in and out.
0: And can you give a more specific example? So, like, if I look at Parabola, you've got all these different connectors. Like, I can connect Salesforce data to a relational database and then create a CSV that dumps into Dropbox. I can take uh, Stripe data and do some email marketing automation with HubSpot. I can make these kinds of workflows. Is there a concise, like prototypical example? Like, let's say there's a problem within an organization that somebody would implement typically in Parabola.
1: For sure. So the biggest problem that we see that's really kind of this, like, painful just to see, let alone for the actual person, is a really manual, repetitive task that somebody is doing. So within a company, pretty much anybody in the operations side or the marketing side, finance team, there's kind of a set of tasks that are being done because of, as we were just talking about, not having access to software engineers, not knowing how to deploy a better system that these people are just holding everything together kind of with the glue of them doing things manually. So somebody gives them a CSV file, they do a bunch of cleanup on it, they're removing columns, finding, replacing, whatever that kind of action is. And they themselves every single day as a head of operations of an e commerce company or a marketing analyst doing marketing attribution are spending hours of their life per day or per week, just kind of like manually cranking the machine when that's really not kind of like the promise of working with the computer and so whenever we identify kind of really common areas there like that's those are the best use cases for parabola to make that more concrete we see some of the best use cases coming particularly from kind of like e-commerce and retail maybe manufacturing companies Where they're working with large amounts of data tends to be items and inventory SKUs, things like that. Mm. They are selling those things with kind of credit card transactions. They have to market usually on the internet to get people to buy their services, and they then have to do some kind of accounting with creating general ledger entries of all these transactions. Mm. And so, if you break those pieces down, those are operations managers doing a lot of inventory management workflows where they have third-party logistics companies and various vendors and all kinds of different, pretty antiquated companies usually that either don't have APIs or they're not the APIs that a traditional software engineer would kind of normally encounter. They're these kind of really old clunky interfaces that kind of the data all needs to be combined together. Some logic needs to be applied. And if I'm that operations manager doing inventory management, I need to understand if I sold three items in my Shopify store, I need to decrement my inventory by three. But if I sold one special combo four pack that I'm also selling now, I need to decrement by four every time I sell one of those things. And just like all these kind of like weird edge case logic that kind of just gets solved by having a bunch of operations people just apply their time to solving these problems. Currently, people are able to automate those tasks with Parabola. And then those really subject matter expert operations managers in that case could start focusing on how do we solve the next layer of complexity in our company and work a little bit more strategically rather than spending all of our time manually kind of operating this engine and holding things together ourselves.
0: So if... You think about somebody operating a Shopify store, and you mentioned that example of somebody buys three of something. Isn't that information just taken care of on the back end by Shopify? Why would I have to build some custom workflow that would need to be kicked off in response to an order for three pairs of socks?
1: Yeah. So the amount of these workflows that are just slightly unique per company is incredible. So that Shopify example is kind of just one small type of thing. Imagine I'm working across multiple systems, each with its own interesting quirk, it's almost inconceivable that all of those systems will build every possible customization and workflow and checkbox and whatever to support Mm -hmm. every possible company that wants to work a little bit differently or have some interesting competitive advantage. The example of the bundled item you were just talking about, as a marketing team for a budding direct-to-consumer e-commerce company is trying to innovate and do interesting new marketing techniques to stand out. They're not going to want to wait till every Shopify releases whatever new feature to support their specific idea they just had. They just had a really interesting idea and they want to implement it. If you were a software engineer, you would just build that thing yourself right on the spot. It would be some interesting growth test. You'd AB test it. You'd see how it works, and then you'd go from there. As that marketing person, you really don't have the ability to do that. So instead, you do it really manually. You download a bunch of CSV files, and you have you or an analyst on your team or somebody crunches all that data and sends it off to be uploaded back into your inventory management system on the other side, and that's the way you deployed your AB test. And I think interesting that that is surprising because to a non-technical user in one of those roles at one of those companies, that's just day-to-day life to get their interesting things done. They just have to do it the manual way because they don't really have another way.
0: Right. So if I have a Shopify site, and let's say every day I want to run a system that will calculate the item that has been ordered the most, let's say it's a pair of socks, for example, and I want to generate an email marketing campaign or a Facebook ads campaign for that item, you know, send an email to all of the customer email addresses I have that says these socks are hot 10% off of these socks. If I have a programmer on my team that can build that, they can wire together some API requests. They can wire together a Python script and some Node.js stuff and they can create that automated email marketing campaign. But more often than not, I'm not gonna have a programmer available. I have somebody who's like an operations expert and if they want to use Parabola, they can look at Parabola and Parabola has a interface for dragging and dropping different integration points. So you could conceivably take the Shopify endpoint as a drag and drop item. You could create maybe a MailChimp drag and drop item on this interface, and you could draw an arrow between them, connecting them, and put any kind of logic on that arrow that you would want to, and you could create that via a drag and drop interface instead of a API code-based interface, which would open it up to visual programmers, essentially.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I think if you really start getting into this, what does it mean to program or does it mean to code, that really is kind of an API you just made internally for your company. It just depends on the abstraction level that you're thinking about. So. With Parabola, we have all of those building blocks. Whether it's connecting to directly to an API and making an API request, if you want to configure that, whether that's working with one of our integrations we already provide to Mailchimp, as you know, Shopify, as you we were describing, and then all those transforms, stringing those together, kind of ends up looking like a Lambda function. If you're, you know, an engineer. You've now created a core piece of functionality that's repeatable. If somebody else on your team wants to open up that flow you just described, it looks like a flowchart. It's kind of this uh, tree of steps that are being taken. So it's kind of self-documenting. Somebody else can say, oh, I see how this is working. We're first importing from these three sources, and then we're joining all that data together. We're looking up our list of customer emails, and then we're choosing to send emails to the people who bought this item within the past 60 days, but not within the past 30 days. And you can just see that all very visually. And not only can that person who is non-technical, create it, but someone, whether technical or not, can understand immediately how it works, audit that it's being done correctly, and go in and make tweaks when we want to, three weeks later, kind of change that test just a little bit.
0: The example that I described, is that a realistic example? Is that something somebody could build in Parabola?
1: Oh, yeah. We have people using almost literally that exact flow. We call our templates and kind of pre-built examples recipes because a recipe for cooking something is something kind of most people are familiar with. They kind of understand that it's a suggestion of how you could go about doing something. But if you tweak it a little bit, maybe you could improve on it. Maybe there's kind of something unique that you want to do differently, more salt, less salt, like whatever. So we have these set of recipes that we publish and increasingly our users are publishing. And those types of examples are some of the most popular recipes that people will create as I'm doing an e-commerce store. And I do want to run one of those interesting marketing tests and send an email either about a top selling item or an item that we know that we just ordered or we haven't yet kind of put up on our site. And we want to start pushing it because we're about to have extra inventory. We have some users who are doing some really interesting predictive, like reordering of inventory, because that's a, it's a pretty big problem for e-commerce companies running on pretty thin margins is you don't wanna end up with just a huge amount of extra inventory for items that aren't selling. And if you have a huge amount of SKUs, that's very time consuming to understand how much inventory you have for each item and how quickly it's selling out. And you might have enough interesting quirks in your audience and your product and your overall operations. That has to be a very highly customized process that someone who's familiar with the company is implementing. So people build interesting flows around all types of that inventory management, probably is our most kind of popular subset of use cases.
0: The e-commerce.
1: The e-commerce and inventory management that you were describing, yeah. So that was extremely spot on what you were just describing.
0: The integration point. So if in that example, if I want to connect to Shopify on one end and connect to MailChimp on the other end, how well developed are the APIs for Shopify and Mailchimp, and how seamless is it for you to provide a connector interface? What does the end user have to do to plug into those connector interfaces? How painful is it?
1: Yeah, well, so for our most popular integrations, keeping in mind that we are targeting kind of like an increasingly less technical audience, we have kind of first-class integrations that are just like a little button that says Authorize. I get my normal OAuth window that has my Shopify username and password I have to type in or my MailChimp username and password I have to type in, just kind of like a user is familiar with seeing with kind of any any tool that they use. And then I'm immediately pulling my data into Parabola. We understand the object types in a more user-friendly way than just a normal API endpoint. So rather than just my, you know, orders endpoint and my transactions endpoint or whatever they have, we're kind of grouping those together into something that's a little bit more familiar for a user who's used to looking at the dashboard of, of one of those tools. And we make that flow really easy. For an integration that's maybe less popular that we don't yet support, we have a generic API connector that basically just sends HTTP requests. And it's pretty robust as well. So you can, again, as a not too technical user, configure connecting to an API, handling the pagination requests, which we do pretty intelligently, doing various kinds of authentication, whether that's bearer token authentication or OAuth authentication. We can kind of connect to a lot of those types of things and enable someone who maybe is a little bit... You know, willing to read an API doc, but certainly not a developer to call an API, use an API and kind of get access to what I think frequently it gets called like the API economy without having to write a line of code. And those types of use cases get really interesting as well. When we see a lot of people connecting to the same URL API, of course, we'll kind of like want to make that a better experience for our users. So they don't have to configure this from scratch every single time. But we've seen, I think we're into the multiple thousands of Kind of services that we've seen people connect with that API connector, which is pretty cool. And I think people get quite excited about, hey, I've heard about these API things. Mm -hmm. I know they have a lot of interesting data. I know my company maybe put a bunch of time into creating a public API. But as a non-engineer, I've never been able to really experience what that means. Because not only is it difficult to send an HTTP request and make an API call, but even if you somehow figured out how to do that, like with curl or something, how do you then work with the resulting data? So Parabola not only makes it really easy to connect to those APIs, but we pull it in, convert it into a nice kind of tabular rows and columns of data like you would see in Excel and make it easy for somebody to start working with an API for the first time.
0: It's very hard to introduce new paradigms like what you're trying to do. I mean, there's a number of companies that are attempting to reimagine how workflow automation works, or, well, I guess introduce workflow automation in the first place, because I think this really is the kind of the replacement for the spreadsheet-based manual task. I mean, there have been attempts at this kind of thing over the years. My understanding is that nothing has really stuck as much as spreadsheets and manual processes. But, you know, you see newer things like whether it's, you know, Zapier or Monday.com or Airtable, Retool, all these different things are trying to change the paradigm. But I see it as incredibly hard to change the inertia because there's so much inertia around, look, I just need to get this done today. I've got a million things to do. I would rather just stick to my spreadsheet workflow I'm not going to adopt your new tool. It's impossible for me to have time to do that. How do you convince people to try the different paradigm that you're introducing?
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think that's probably the main reason why you know, Excel, Google Sheets, essentially the same paradigm has been the most popular way for you know, all non engineers to do work for the past 30 or 40 years. I think there's a few ways of kind of solving the problem. I think first part is there are those group of people that we were you know, calling productivity optimizers, who kind of are predisposed to want to kind of up level themselves. They're seeing people, you know, who are software engineers, maybe they're friends with them, maybe they see them at their companies who are really operating at this level that is hard to keep up with. And they kind of want to be able to do the same thing. They want the same access to build their own ideas, not be beholden to kind of this like tiny group of people in the world who know how to code. I think broader than that, I have a technical background, but I also work in the finance world. And I like to apply kind of market force dynamics to a lot of problems. That's a lens I, I look at a lot of problems through. And market forces are really hard things to compete with. And as this new group of, whether you call them no-code tools or new productivity tools that you were talking about, have kind of started to get some more traction, the companies that use them and the people at those companies who use them achieve kind of substantially better results at the end. They're more productive. They're automating those really manual tasks and moving off to focusing on the much more interesting, more strategic, higher leverage problems. and the person or the company who 10 years from now has refused to adopt that new way of working in a more leveraged way just can't possibly keep up with the company that spent 10 years investing in how does every person in our company start having this like more strategic higher leverage job so I think to some extent, giving people access to these things and letting the market kind of pull in that direction is something we're already starting to see. And I think whether it's a Webflow and a Bubble or Airtable or some of the other kind of more project management tools, you know, Notion and a Monday.com, all of these companies together, I think, are really benefiting each other by if, you're, if you try Airtable or you try Notion or you try Parabola and you realize, oh, wow, there's this new way of doing work. I don't have to show up for work every morning and just spend six hours doing my really manual tasks. And instead, I can build a system that is imbued with that knowledge and logic and then move on to solving the next most important problem. Once you've experienced that for the first time in any of these set of tools, you're immediately going to try to go explore the remainder of the set of new productivity tools. And so I think every kind of new user that We show Parabola to Onboards into Airtable, becomes a user of this whole category. So I think we're all kind of helping each other and helping the world understand how they can benefit from working better.
0: And living in San Francisco, it's easy to convince ourselves that this is happening. I want it to happen. I think it should happen. I want the market forces to play out the way that you have portrayed them. For me, it's always tough to get perspective for what is actually happening in the broader world? Are people actually adopting these things to the extent that you need them to, to build a company around it?
1: Yeah, so maybe two ways of looking at that. I think the more quantitative way is the vast majority of our company, our customers and our users are not in san francisco they're in companies that have been manufacturing items that you maybe use on a daily basis but never really think about what goes into the, that process and how do you procure all of the different materials and manage the time schedules of the people who are making those things and deal with the inventory management once you've made have all these items anyway that huge amount of really smart difficult strategic work that goes into Things I think we in Silicon Valley take for granted just because we kind of aren't exposed to them a lot and how much, therefore, those companies can also benefit from the kind of technical abilities of a Silicon Valley or the you know, the greater the, the Silicon Valley is the word, not necessarily the place. And anyway, so I think the interesting point there would be that most of our users and customers have never heard of a lot of these fancy, no-code, whatever things. They have a specific problem in their work that is really important to them that they are just trying to solve. They find us to solve that problem. And every, every time we help a company who previously was doing something manually now do something in a more automated, highly levered way, and as a result, either the uh, people who were building those probable flows kind of start getting promoted and doing more interesting things or the company itself starts growing. There are these just awesome stories that our users and customers rave about and we love to hear. So I think there's one whole kind of segment of data there. I think the other answer to your question is, I kind of think this has to happen. And what I mean there is, if you'll humor me going a little bit more, think about this in a little bit more grandiose kind of way, I think that productivity leverage spectrum I was laying out Earlier, if you start to think about how market forces apply to that whole productivity leverage spectrum kind of gets to this interesting way of looking at the world where the computer revolution or the digital revolution, or whatever you want to call that, was kind of promised starting 20, 30, 40, whatever, maybe more years ago as this way to fundamentally change the way that everybody works and give everybody this access to higher levered work and computers are going to take the boring mundane jobs. And maybe some people think that's a really good thing that automation is going to help. And some people are scared of automation because it's going to replace jobs. But kind of regardless of that, the, the benefits of this digital revolution have really only accrued to a very small slice of people who maybe live in the Silicon Valley and New York and whatever they're talking about. And I think one version of the future is those people have gotten so many of those benefits that it's not really hard to kind of compete with the Googles or the Facebooks or whatever of the world if you're not the Google or Facebook or high tech company of the world. And I think the bad version of the future looks like those people in those companies continue to race off with most of the benefit and everybody else kind of being left behind. And I think you get to some really weird political and sociological uh, problems that are maybe Some of the things that we see today in the world. I think the good version of the future looks like letting the rollout of this digital revolution kind of continue and everybody kind of get access to the benefits. And I think without intervention, with just letting everything be the way it is today, We're not on track for that. And I think the reason I am doing what I'm doing and I'm so excited about this broader set of tools, regardless of if they're, you know, a competitor of ours or just another tool in our space, I think I'm excited about all of these companies because I think it's critical to the future of us as humans that everybody get access to these types of capabilities and join that group that is today much too small.
0: My understanding is that some of your impetus for starting Parabola was from your work at Deloitte. And Deloitte is a consulting company that works with a lot of large companies. And I imagine that when you were inside Deloitte, you got an up close view of the pains that some large companies have when trying to adopt modern technology. What are the most acute pain points of manual processes that you saw in large enterprises?
1: Hmm. Well, I think the largest pain point is probably true of any process, not just those these specific really manual processes, but they're, they're kind of human problems of how do you take a really, really boring routine process that I think most people would call drudgery and inspire people to really do it and become really good at it and, and take pride in doing it. And the amount of people I met throughout the companies I was consulting for who Had come up with just the most interesting mission critical processes for their company was astounding. Like from everywhere in the organization down to kind of like the lowest level employee, you know, all of these people have processes that they themselves take a lot of pride in and are frequently ingenious processes that help the whole company run. And the person who is creating those processes then gets stuck doing the process every single day where they came up with this ingenious thing that's going to make the company work better. But they can only create one or two of those things because now they just have to be stuck doing it themselves. And how much more interesting if the person who could come up with that ingenious process could create it, offload it to a computer to now do it for them and move on to creating the next ingenious process that will help make their job even better. And I think the, the place I saw this go wrong, I guess in consulting, a lot of those companies would lose the people who created these really interesting processes. So that Craig from Craigslist, we were talking about earlier, because they don't want to be stuck just running the process. They're really good at creating these like new interesting things. And so, yeah, really interesting and valuable to enable those people to take that inner creativity and analytical capability and express it and get out into the world and not just kind of leave it locked within
0: this kind of like one or two things that they're currently doing. Describe the software stack parabola.
1: Yeah, so we've been describing how parabola can help people close this whole time, but to paint a picture of what that actually looks like, it all runs in a web browser. It's a very native-feeling, rich app built in React that kind of lets us have that like really maybe complex state management tree, but have everything stay in sync and up to date and high performance, all those benefits that, that kind of React tends to give you, a modern kind of JavaScript and React stack. When I was first building parabola as kind of an initial prototype. I didn't want to mess around too much with how does this whole calculation engine of actually like calculating the flows that people create work. Uh, And so I built a calculation engine that was again, kind of naive just uh, in the browser. And so you would drag and drop a bunch of these steps onto your canvas, you'd connect them all up. And when you either hit run or made a change in one of them, it would kick off a, to get a little bit technical, a depth first search through this tree of steps you've created, figure out what the minimal amount of changes that need to be recalculated are, and then, just in the same thread in the browser, it would do a calculate on the steps and spit back out the results. And, and a core principle of Parabola is kind of maintaining some of the best parts of Excel and of a spreadsheet, which are the direct manipulation and the immediate feedback that you get. Where if I'm in Excel and I type in a formula and I hit enter, my whole spreadsheet recalculates. And I get to see all of the changes, whether they were correct or not correct. And as a non engineer, that's kind of the way I've been trained to think, to make a change and see what happens. Engineers, on the other hand, can look at maybe sixty lines of code and are kind of trained to keep the the state of each of those variables and function calls and in a you know, stack in their head. And just non engineers, because kind of have never had exposure to that. So it, I think it's very important to maintain that sense of direct manipulation and kind of operating on an entire data set at a time and a few interesting other principles. Anyway, as we started kind of turning that prototype into a real product that you know real customers were putting through the paces, obviously running all of that just in the browser didn't really make sense. Data sizes were starting to get too large for people's computers and a variety of problems. Mm-hmm. You know, the back end of the stack now looks like this custom built calculation engine that takes each of those steps that are being added to your react app in the browser figures out the minimal amount of calculations needed to be made adds those to a queue that we have a bunch of worker servers listening to each one knows how to calculate each of our steps so you know there's a function that is called for column filters there's a function that's called for joins there's a function that's called for that you know sentiment analysis step and we have the fleet of worker servers who can grab those items off the queue a kind of calculate the data stream it back to the browser in real time so as a user I'm making a change and I see my data calculating and streaming right back kind of just in real time even if it's a huge data set that my computer otherwise wouldn't really be able to handle I still can operate on it as if it is live on my computer and there's a variety of really interesting tech challenges as a result of that architecture but the result is this like really interesting product that for a non-technical user is immediately familiar kind of feels like the best parts of a spreadsheet while having the benefit of some of the software development best practices given to you as well.
0: And what cloud products are you using?
1: We are using AWS for all of our services. The caching that happens, we use Redis for every time a step calculates, it needs to write that data back so we can cache it really quickly in Redis, then stream that back to the browser while I move on to calculating the next set of steps. We have a really interesting security model as well where we're able to treat all these individual components, call them steps that you add to your flow as essentially stateless and the flows themselves are essentially stateless. So every time something's calculating, we can be caching that data and streaming it back to the browser. But at any point in time, uh, we know that we can recalculate one of those flows and not have any weird side effects. And so we keep data for as small amount of time as possible, makes kind of the security conversations extremely easy because there's kind of no persistence of data that shouldn't be persisted.
0: So let's say I want to create a workflow in Parabola and I'm running an e-commerce site and let's say the first step in the workflow is I get all the orders from the past week and it's got thousands and thousands of orders. And the next step I wanna filter for orders that were over $50. And that whittles the number of orders down. I'm creating this in a drag and drop interface And the next step, I want to connect the email addresses of those orders to my Salesforce database. I only wanna keep the orders that are of people that are in my Salesforce database. And then the last step is I wanna send an email to all those people who have created orders that are over $50 that are in my Salesforce database. So I can send them an email that says, you know, thank you for being a repeat customer. Here's a $10 gift certificate or something like that. So in this case, I would have like four different steps and as the data is being processed across these different steps, it's being changed on your backend, right? When that data is pulled from the database or the Shopify backend or whatever for those thousands and thousands of orders, let's say on the very first step, is it being pulled into memory? Is it pulled into Redis? Is it pulled into a database? I know you're not the CTO, but I'm just very interested like how you handle, the data on the back end while this workflow is proceeding front-end to the user.
1: Yeah, so without giving too much secret sauce away, yeah, we cache most of that stuff in Redis as we're pulling it in and we can fail over to S3 if we need to, if uh, it ends up being like a really huge data set. We're able to do some really intelligent hashing of the data that we pull in so we can recalculate things kind of as minimally as possible to save on calculation time. Um and on kind of like refetchings if there's API calls kind of deeply nested in there. In Parabola, when you have one of those steps on your screen, so if it's a Shopify import, you can double click on it and it shows you the entire set of data at a time. And you get that, we call it our result view. It's showing you, depending on how big your screen is, maybe it's showing you like 40, 50 rows at a time. As you scroll through, we're able to kind of prefetch a windowed view coming out of that cache of the next few hundred rows of data you need to see and kind of give that to you in this like virtualized result view so that I could have 10 million rows of data coming out of one of those steps, but I'm kind of scrubbing through it in the UI in this like really kind of nice performant way that I can either scroll through or search through or kind of whatever that is. And we do a variety of interesting work to make that possible and feel really nice and performant for the end user. We also have some interesting approaches to maybe what you were getting at with that question is if I'm pulling in some huge amount of data out of a database, are we storing that so that next time that flow runs, we only have to kind of pull the next little bit of data rather than re-pull in all of that data. And there are some pretty intelligent things we can do if we understand like the underlying SQL query that's being made on a database. And we can abstract some of that away from the user. But I think an interesting insight at least so far for most of our users is when you're developing a product that is for these type of use cases we've been describing during this conversation, and you don't have to worry about it being, you know, a developer product that could be built into applications and other types of things. You can, we can make design trade-offs based on how much data we're probably going to have in some of these use cases. And what I mean by that is, you know, a non-engineer, an operations manager working at one of these e-commerce companies, Big data in that world is very different than big data as a software engineer. An e commerce company is pulling in SKU data, you're probably talking about maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe a few million rows of data which would be a very large company if they're selling that many items. Sure, right. But from a technical perspective, that's actually not a huge amount of data. And so we actually can get away with reloading a lot of this data (laughs) and kind of not worrying too much about all of that really careful performance stuff and instead focus on making sure that the data is always up to date, that everything is kind of really easy to reason through both as a user and as a developer on our side. And I think we get a few really interesting product benefits as a result of focusing on what are the real use cases people are using Parabola for.
0: Right. So you're not necessarily catering to the kind of back end infrastructure challenges of somebody processing five terabytes of clickstream data and doing some kind of advertising based calculation off of that. You know, I'm sure you can process some large clickstreams, but to some extent, you're working in an environment where you have an embarrassment of riches. You have really good network connectivity. You have relatively small data sets, you have really fast browsers these days, and you have great back-end cloud infrastructure, so the challenges that might have looked like big data or large objects that you had to render or large objects that you had to deal with or browser issues that you might have had to deal with in the past, a lot of these are just ironed out by the software abstractions that you have today.
1: Uh, exactly. And I think even more than that, we're benefiting from, you know, memory is increasingly cheap. And things like V8 have made JavaScript really extremely performant, both on the front end and a surprising amount of the like detailed calculation logic on our backend actually runs on node servers as well. So we are able to keep most of our code base in JavaScript, which I think a few years ago would have been a pretty surprising statement and now maybe is not so surprising. And yeah, so I think We, as maybe an engineer, you know, at Parabola, it is kind of an embarrassment of riches where we're able to be extremely product obsessed and focused on what is this experience like for an end user doing this like pretty well known subset of use cases and make that experience just the absolute most amazing best experience for them possible. And we can do that given that kind of technical embarrassment of riches, I guess, that, you know, we have on our side. It's both a very interesting architecture that I think we've had to build because most of the open source big data processing stuff designed for processing terabytes of data doesn't have the live direct manipulation you know, trade-offs I was talking about before. And so I think we've had to custom build a lot of this stuff. But the end result is both a really interesting developer experience on our side and a really interesting product experience for our users.
0: There are low code programmers who use Webflow or Bubble as their front end, and then they use parabola for backend data processing. I was looking at your website and some of the blog entries or the recipes were about people who had built something significant in Webflow or Bubble and then they had some kind of backend data processing needs and used parabola. Can you give me any use case or anecdote of this stack? I'm just trying to understand the full stack low code entrepreneur, the kind of entrepreneur that does not know how to write code, but today has enough tooling to create almost anything that they can imagine through low code tools.
1: Yeah, so this whole conversation we've been talking about, maybe parabola isolation as used in this e-commerce context during kind of some of these specific roles for helping people automate their like manual data tasks. There's definitely this other really interesting subset of users who are kind of doing what you described, I think this past week, we've actually seen two people use, I think one was Webflow and one was Bubble to have top products on Product Hunt that were powered by Parabola behind the scenes and using Webflow and Bubble as kind of the web app layer on top of them. One was called Press Hunt and one, I'm blanking on the name of the other one. I think this Press Hunt one's an interesting example. They were solving the problem where reporters need, I hope I'm not butchering this for them, but yeah. reporters need to interview people who are experts on certain subjects when they're writing a piece. So I need to talk to someone who has recently went on this type of diet and had good results or bad results or whatever the type of thing is, Mm -hmm. they probably don't have every one of those people in their network. And so there's a variety of hacked together ways that they post those listings and say, hey, can anybody who has this thing contact me and I'll quote them in my article. And so this user of ours had understood this problem, I think personally, and so created a platform, kind of essentially a marketplace where Journalists can post requests, people can find those requests and possibly get paid as a result or at least get publicity for having answered some of those questions. The data processing of fetching some of those requests from the various places they're currently um, posted, whether that's Twitter or other places, consolidating that all together into one standardized view of data and then loading that into Webflow or Bubble or kind of one of those types of tools, CMSs essentially, so that it can be dynamically shown by their view layer. Tends to be the common way those use cases get deployed, if that all made sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does make sense. Is there a low-code equivalent of GitHub today? When you look at all these workflows that people are creating in Parabola or Webflow or Zapier or whatever, is there some kind of consolidating point that people can go to and see what's going on and examples of low-code stuff?
1: I think there are a few fledgling versions of this. So if you're familiar with them, there's a group called MakerPad that's kind of clearly been one of the big supporters of this no-code world. And they are a source for kind of highlighting interesting no-code tools, providing a bunch of tutorials and bringing together, whether it's tutorials or live streams or user stories or other types of things about people creating stuff with a variety of no-code tools, or I think increasingly showing off the, the things that they've built There's a few other, I think, similar platforms that are all trying to be a community hub for no-code people. I think there's an inherent challenge with, like, GitHub does something interesting, and this is one of the places where code is kind of both good and bad, is that all code is text-based, essentially, until these kind of visual programming tools. And so regardless of whether you're writing a Node application or a React app or a C++ game engine or kind of whatever you're doing, you and store all of that in GitHub and have the same view it. I think today there probably does not exist a comparable version for no-code tools, mm-hmm. though I definitely think that's a useful activity. Internally at Parabola, we have our recipe library that we are just beginning to open up to some of our more power users and we'll soon be opening up to everybody to publish the recipes they've built in Parabola. Flows they built in Parabola, publish them as recipes so that other people can see what they've built, consume them, create them themselves. And again, without giving away too much, we have some really, really exciting things planned for the next six or so months kind of going down that road. But overall for this kind of no-code space, there's a huge opportunity to help all of these creators share, collaborate both learn from each other and maybe reuse what each other are creating.
0: Is the prototypical user of Parabola these low-code entrepreneur people or the Shopify store that is doing really well? Or have you managed to get into larger enterprises like Netflix or Airbnb or Checker or something?
1: So I think it depends if this question is wearing my vision for the company hat or our in the weeds kind of go to market hat. I think in the very near future, we would like to be serving all of those groups of people. I think anybody who today does not feel fully empowered to build their own workflows to solve the problems that they're identifying and implement their like really innovative solutions they're coming up with. Particularly as those apply to manipulating data, but even if they are coupled with another tool to build a full stack app. Any of those people who today are not fully empowered, we would like to empower and get back to what we were talking about of bringing everybody up into this like ability to be operating like what today's software engineers are able to operate like. From a more practical perspective, you know today, very much seeing a few groups of those interesting users. So I think the this maker community has been extremely supportive of us, and we've seen really incredible things that they're building. Definitely want to make sure that they continue to be well taken care of the uh, e-commerce retail manufacturing world. We also have just absolutely incredible stories coming from our users of having done the same thing every single day for years and years and years. And finally, for the first time, being able to replace that manual process and start uploading themselves. And just what that, that empowering kind of like almost emotional resonance moment is. And so definitely investing a lot of our kind of products and product time into features for them. And then I think the most interesting learning so far of our company is that serving both of those groups really well, actually kind of by default serves some of those bigger enterprises you're talking about, where because the use cases that we are solving are really kind of individual and small team use cases, things that an individual feels the pain really strongly, those people are doing the same things at the absolute biggest companies, you know, those Fortune 50 companies I used to consult for just as they are at a small startup or kind of side project that somebody is considering turning into a startup. And so by solving those other two groups really well, we have kind of, without even focusing too much on it, made our way into a few of those exciting enterprises you're talking about, ranging across the stack of there's probably some logos on our website you can see and, and I want to divulge too many customers here but the absolute same features uh, are helpful for them and that's I think been actually a surprising learning of how strong this pain point is and how horizontally applicable it can be.
0: What else have you seen people build with Parabola that has surprised you?
1: So the flows that we geek out on internally are some of the just like really crazy powerful complex ones so Again, as you're adding all these steps to your screen, a lot of people will build a five or 10 step flow that's replacing one of these manual processes we're talking about, and they get a lot of value out of that. On the kind of far extreme other side, we've seen people with these crazy monstrosities of four or 500 steps of full on looking at one of these things. It's like a crazy, insane flow chart, maybe mapping out like a detailed program. It really looks like looking at code. And they are doing, let's see, the the most complicated one I think I've seen is someone who built their own custom bespoke marketing automation engine, basically inside of Parabola, that was pulling in lead data out of Salesforce. It was collecting Google Forms from their AEs and SDRs who were filling out, like, please contact this person or please don't contact this person because they told us to stop bugging them. It was deduping against internal customer databases so they didn't accidentally reach out to somebody as a lead who was actually a customer it was enriching data about all of those leads with their job titles and other types of things i think it would score the leads based on if you're a director you get some amount of points and if you're a manager you get some other amount of points it would pick the most three interesting people from each company as a result of custom logic they're applying of whatever their current focus as a company was of how that scoring engine worked It would select the top three I think it would turn them into a comma-separated list of talking with these three people at your company. And then it would send off, or I think in this case, it was maybe just creating a ready-to-send list of emails with all of these custom merge tags and enriched sentences and everything added in to add personalization into each of these emails. And it was basically one of the more complicated marketing automation tools you could think of built entirely inside of Parabola and entirely bespoke for this marketing team's workflow of data identified it was a really important piece of their customer acquisition process.
0: Last question, if you weren't building Parabola, what business would you build?
1: That's interesting. I think a lot about kind of as we evangelize productivity leverage and opportunity costs to our users and and customers. And I think a lot about that internally. And so I always want to make sure that I'm working on the highest leverage, best opportunity cost thing possible. And so certainly currently find Parabola to be that thing. I think there are kind of other domains of problem at the moment that uh, touch on similar types of things. And I think the interesting dynamics that overlap tend to be in this productivity inequality spectrum I was talking about or in kind of marshalling market forces. I have kind of stayed away from the crypto world while that was kind of buzzy before this like kind of no code world now maybe is buzzy, but I'm really bullish on that world in general. And I think that there's going to be some very interesting ways of organizing humans and helping apply and marshal market forces to human you know, political sociological problems that today are kind of being solved by, or maybe not really solved by delegating them to companies or letting our current broken political system try to solve some of these problems. And I think some of the most interesting crypto projects at the moment will hopefully in the near future be able to credibly be a solution to some of society's bigger problems. I don't exactly know how that gets from kind of fledgling idea. People like to talk about it and it gets a lot of hype phase to actually solving real world problems phase. But I hope that smart people will pick up some of those problems and work on them as well.
0: Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you.
1: Absolutely. You as well.